What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Here we are, folks. Another episode of the Positively Trek podcast with your hosts. That's me, Dan Gunther. And with me, of course, is the awesome Barry DeFord. Barry, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful. It's a nice uh, nice morning discussion we're having. Usually we have these discussions in the evening, but uh, I've, had my, I've had my coffee, the sun's shining, and I always find my voice is a little better for radio in the morning, right? It gets that nice deep, deep baritone to it. Yeah, there's kind of a, a little bit of a an association with audio stuff and morning, right? Because everybody is heading to work. Everybody knows the various morning shows that could be like the deep thinky stuff with the gravelly voice like this, or it could be the wild morning crew with <laughs> Barry and Dan know. coming to you from the Argus array. <laughs> Watch out. Special we're... guest, Ricky, the goof. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh man. We, we missed our calling. We, well, no, maybe we didn't wait. We're, we're doing exactly what we want. We're we're on a radio-ish totally. sort of thing. Yeah, never mind. Yeah. We just muscled our way into this. Perfect. Does Star Trek, does the Star Trek universe have its equivalent of like those wacky morning shows? Like we saw Neelix with his show on Voyager, his mm-hmm. little video show. But like, are there podcasts or whatever the equivalent is that people tune into on the regular on Star Trek? I would love to see that. I would imagine in a post-scarcity society where basically you can just follow your dreams there are definitely people who will will wend their time away talking about just the goofiest stuff i would imagine and get complete fulfillment out of it for the seven to ten listeners who are also into the same <laughs> thing so yeah no i 100 percent think that the star trek universe would have goofs just like us chitter chattering away about whatever i think that would be wonderful <laughs> i want to see now on the Enterprise, where Picard walks in, gets his morning Earl Grey, goes to the computer, hits the button, and says, Welcome, everybody, to the newest episode of the Dixon Hill cast. I'm your host, <laughs> Tracy Torme, and with me... <laughs> I was going to be like, and now for our new segment, can you say that in Klingon? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I, I think we have an idea for... Uh for a new uh, episode to do at some point. Yeah. Is that Klingon uh, or someone choking to death? Only mildly offensive. You know, the the Klingon empire has lodged a complaint and by lodged a complaint, they meant a bat left into the person. No, I'm just kidding. All right. I'm doing one more. We've received our 55th request from a Lieutenant Worf who wants to hear Melota. All right, let's get (laughs) Melota started. Yes. (laughs) Melota. Oh, man. Okay. Well, we're getting complaints from a fat Ferengi that he's not enjoying it. Yeah, so we'll move yeah, on. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, today's episode, we're not talking about that, but I could talk more about that for hours. That would be fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're talking about today is 
the idea of these storylines or basically hanging story ideas from across the Star Trek universe that have not been followed up on in canon Star Trek. And that little qualifier will become important, I think, as we go on. And this was something that, you know, we were trying to think of what we were going to talk about for this episode. And there's so many things that like either are just very blatant setups for a story that never came or even just kind of tantalizing things that, boy, it would be really cool to revisit this again sometime and see what happened here. So Barry and I have both kind of come up with our own separate lists, not really consulting with each other and seeing what we came up with and looking at the lists now, I'm very pleased with uh, how there's a couple of crossovers, but for the most part, what we have chosen, uh, we have two very different lists, which is very exciting. It's going to be a great discussion, I think. I agree. I think, you know, we're, we're talking about decades of different writers coming in sometimes, you know, just trying to get something finished. You know, the classic Star Trek TNG thing is always this high concept episode that after the third act kind of has to tumble to the end because they realize they've only got five minutes of of episode left. And, and so sometimes you get these larger plot holes from the 60s to the 80s to, to now where it's not perfect, right? These are These mm-hmm. are just writers writing a show and there are going to be moments in time when they're not going to correlate with things. Now, I will say that um, the writers these days are, I would say they're almost mining from some of this stuff. And I think we're going to find mm-hmm. that, that the the novelists uh, pioneered that in a lot of ways. And uh, so there might be some things that I might mention that actually have been covered in the novelizations, but I'm kind of going more by just the episodes themselves for your, your workaday Star Trek uh, fan who doesn't necessarily read all of the books. Absolutely. But the cool thing about this too is if there is something on this list that you're like, yeah, why did they never follow up on that? Uh, I will be pointing out at least as far as my knowledge goes, uh, which is not all of the novels and comics, but a few of them. A lot of these have been kind of followed up on outside of the canon stuff. So if you are looking for some answers, not canon ones, but some possible answers to some of these mysteries or some revisitations to these situations and people, uh, maybe I can point you in the right direction and you can find some interesting stories out there that deal with these. Uh, that's definitely the case for a few of these. So Exactly. Uh, and, and I mean, the Positively Trek book club might even touch on mm-hmm. some of these in certain pieces of time. So stay tuned, kids. I guarantee for one of them, we absolutely will be fairly soon. So <laughs> hint, hint. <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, looking at these lists, uh, Barry, why don't you lead us off with uh, a pick from your list? And um, I kind of had mine in order of series, but I don't think that matters. I think just wherever the conversation takes us, whatever you feel like is the one you want to start out with. Yeah, mine mine is 100% a, a scattershot of shower thoughts, I like to think of. And <laughs> I'm going to start with the very first one that does, does actually like sometimes just cross my mind. And, and that is uh, Famke Jensen's character in The Perfect Mate, where mm. uh, just... F- to catch up anyone who might not have seen it recently or not seen this episode at all. Uh, it's from Star Trek The Next Generation, where Captain Picard comes across a very special piece of cargo that turns out to actually be a person. 
um, human trafficking implications notwithstanding. She is a, a person who kind of gets conditioned to love the person she's with by spending time with them. It's sort of like she gets promised to a person and then she falls in love. It doesn't happen with the person she's supposed to. Uh, instead, she winds up falling in love with Captain Picard. But in a act of honor, they both decide to move on with their lives. She goes with the person she was quote unquote promised to. Picard goes on captaining the Enterprise. But it is very deeply understood that her character fell in love with Picard and will now be in love with him for the rest of her life, therefore living a lie for the rest of her days. And this is never really followed up on as far as I know. She just goes off and will live a lonely and miserable life for lack of a better term. And it's something mm -hmm. that definitely does pull at one's heartstrings and also kind of gives us a sense of uh, a lack of justice. And uh, I mean, there are a little bit of misogynistic overtones there. But overall, I've always wanted to know what might have happened to this character, how she would have dealt with things. It would have been great to see her come back in the Star Trek Picard series as well as a potential love interest even. I mean, or maybe she's overcome it somehow. And then she can come back and say, Jean-Luc, you know, I, I loved you for a really, really long time, but I was able to actually overcome my own, you know, neural programming. And now I'm a free person. I don't have to love anyone if I don't want to. I can just freely go about my life without that burden anymore. And so back in the day when I first saw that episode, I'd have been a, a young, you know, preteen, I would suspect. And I found myself quite attracted to Femke Jensen's character and, you know, the type of person she kind of made herself out to be and I remember thinking quite a lot about that of you know are we ever going to see her again is she ever going to come back what's she doing how is she doing the guy who she wound up with is he treating her well all of these questions always kind of came to mind and um, it is sort of disappointing that it never got any further discussion I mean I can understand it's something problematic to a lot of uh, to a lot of degrees here but um, that would have been that's my first opening conversation is uh, a character whose potential, you know, was was really just for an episode kind of Kirk like, you know, from our last episode, Captain Kirk left a, a wake of ladies as well to some degree. But um, Jean-Luc is always a more honorable person. And now he is also not someone without kind of these hanging losses. I like to think of the inner light, right? There's an entire life that he led that I, he just doesn't really talk about very often. But yeah, no, uh, that, that would be my first one. Uh, what were your thoughts on that episode when you saw it? Or, or what are your thoughts on that episode overall? Yeah, like you, I saw that very early in my life. I think uh, actually, interestingly enough, season five of TNG is when I first started watching Star Trek The Next Generation live on television. So I did see that when it first came out. I was also a very young man. And uh, yeah, like this episode, I'm pretty sure I, I I haven't looked it up, but I'm assuming written for men by men. Yeah, yeah, very much so. <laughs> very much so. Uh, so yeah, like you, it played on all of those thoughts in my head at that age. And I absolutely fell for this character as well. And uh, yeah, in retrospect, having grown up, it, it's very telling that that character bears all of the fallout of the episode and we never see her again. Like Picard has some regrets and feels sad about it, but he doesn't have this biological condition <laughs> that's going to like potentially eat away at his psyche for the rest of his life because of, of this incident. And she, by implication of the episode is 
and we never have to see her again. We never have to worry about her again. But yeah, I always was curious if we'd, if we'd see her again, if something would change in that situation. I think that's a very compelling one. And, and, uh, yeah, one that, that inspires a lot of thoughts of, you know, Picard's continued career afterwards and the life he leads. Is there someone out there who's following that career and maybe paying attention to where he is and what he's doing or not cutting, cutting herself off completely so that this doesn't affect her? Like, I, I don't know. I'd be really curious. Now there is, as far as I know, no direct follow-up to her character outside of the the shows or anything like in novels or comics. If anyone out there knows any differently though, please let us know. Um, we just want to know she's okay. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, there is some interesting follow-up with her species though, the Creotians and another empathic metamorph is one of the characters in the Star Trek Voyager relaunch novels that take place after the uh, series. So written by Kirsten Beyer, this uh, series of novels chronicles Voyager leading a fleet back to the Delta Quadrant for exploration purposes via slipstream technology. And uh, yeah, one of the characters is an empathic metamorph and there's some interesting stuff done with her story there that in, in some ways, because it's Kirsten Beyer, I think writes some of the issues. I mean, doesn't change this episode and what it says, but kind of recontextualizes a few things about the Creotians that maybe kind of, uh, and, and calls out some of the problematic things about, about that story as well. So, uh, some interesting stuff there that if people are interested in the Creotians and empathic metamorphs, you might want to check that out. Yeah. And, and I guess to kind of put a pin in that one, just to start the conversation, um, my hope would be that yes, she she somehow managed through meditation or something to overcome that programming altogether and be able to be more free willed in her ability to love whomever she pleases. So mm -hmm. that's kind of my head canon that that you know it it will take a little bit. It'll probably be filled with a certain amount of anguish and frustration. But in the end, my hope is that she would uh, be able to overcome that and overcome any male figure in her in her life moving forward. So mm -hmm. there's my first one. What about yourself? What's the one that really picks at your brain? Well, I'm going to jump back. I'm going to go right to the almost the very beginning of Star Trek, the, the second pilot from Star Trek, the original series, where no man has gone before. And that's the idea of these human espers where it is scientifically cataloged, apparently, that many humans have the ability or some humans have the ability to uh, foretell future events and read the backs of playing cards and these sorts of things that uh, maybe in the 1960s felt like they were kind of on the cusp of scientific rigor and and investigation but maybe today and i hope i'm not stepping on toes out there uh seem like flim flam yeah. and uh nonsense but uh it's interesting that yeah by the mid 23rd century apparently humans are documented to have some of these abilities we just never hear of it again so, um, I, would be curious on a follow-up of that. Like, are they just a regular part of society? Have they become a, a new group within society? Babylon five, I think does the idea of human telepaths very interestingly. And it would be interesting to see if it kind of traveled along that route, or is this something that, uh, maybe further scientific rigor kind of 
dismissed at a later date, and that's why we don't hear about them. My biggest question about that episode is a little more practical in the sense that I wonder how badly the actor's corneas got ripped up by that tinfoil they had to put in their eyes. Reportedly not good. (laughs) Oh, I can only imagine just just oh the the things you do for a paycheck my goodness um now i will say that i am aware that the somewhat disgraced fan uh film fiction fan made series that has kind of utilized that conversation to kind of close the circuit to some degree but you're right it really doesn't come up in canon whatsoever anymore Mm -hmm. which again i I wonder sometimes if the writers who are going to be writing further stuff into the future might possibly be able to kind of select from that and build something from there because i mean clairvoyance and everything like that i I, for me the jury is out i do think that there are certain times where someone's intuition can converge on premonition i guess you could say but um i'm not one to say that necessarily any human being is going to be able to completely see the future per se but uh, i'd love to have that knowledge and and i mean what one does with that knowledge i think that's where we kind of get into things that you could use these powers for both evil and for good equally and it really depends on the character you have but uh yeah i don't know i'm it would be neat to even have someone on the bridge with something like that you know we've had deanna troy uh, and her empathic abilities to understand what people's emotions are but even to to see sometimes like prince of persia style just a little bit into the the future or even being able to kind of rewind backward and, and and i love the idea of telekinesis right uh again going back to famke jensen when she played Jean gray um she had some pretty good powers but and then those powers got way out of control and then the entire storyline of the original x-men movie series went kaput uh because they just <laughs> they, yeah what can you do with that and maybe to some degree the uh the espers in where no man has gone before ultimately were just too overpowered to even work with and i think in a lot of cases this is what we're going to see with a lot of our loose ends especially when it comes to these beings that come and go is they're just too overpowered like if you had them as a regular person or a regular character it would kind of take the stakes down a little bit if they had such incredible abilities so i can kind of see why we wouldn't necessarily want to go into this but uh typically in typical star trek fashion yeah the the big powerful thing gets defeated sort of ignominiously and then we move on yeah i also just love the fact that gary mitchell and and elizabeth daner's starfleet records have this on them like at some point during their academy career or induction into starfleet or whatever somebody sat across from them and did the playing card test and like i guess every starfleet officer has to do that uh, I, I picture, you know, Peter Venkman from <laughs> Ghostbusters doing that, right? <laughs> and Gary spits his gum out when he gets uh, zapped. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, this was kind of on my mind a little bit because uh, in the last couple of days, I did go see the movie Madame Web. Oh, okay. Um, it is not good. Don't go see it. It is so bad. Um, but, you know, that's kind of her ability is the ability. To, and I was like, wait. They said that people could do this in Star Trek. I forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I don't know. Now, there is a bit of a follow-up to this in a Christopher Bennett novel that came out in 2020 called The Higher Frontier, where he kind of tied the idea of human espers to what Gene Roddenberry called the new human movement, which was right. from the motion picture novelization, which is a bit of weirdness. So he kind of tied those together and gave them an interesting story and also kind of explained why we don't see them later on. Mm. So Christopher L. Bennett is 
a master at doing those ties to past continuity and stuff. So nothing canon, but uh, that episode is a trip if you want (laughs) to read that. (laughs) Yeah. Roddenberry did get a little wooey sometimes, I find, in that regard. Yes. I think he could kind of paint himself into a bit of a corner whenever he explored it. So I am glad that uh, to some degree that could have taken Star Trek in a very different direction if we were dealing with a little more wooey powers like like clairvoyance and telekinesis and and whatnot. I mean, again, you know, characters like Guinan, I think, do a little more justice to that, where she's extremely mm. guarded with her somewhat seemingly supernatural powers and stuff like that. So, And also, they technobabble tie it to things like you know, quantum fluctuations in the oh, space-time yeah. continuum and subspace fields or whatever. So sure, <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what uh, what do you have next on your list? This one I think about actually on the daily, and it has everything to do with the ships themselves and space and what I understand of space and everything else. Um, I love the Star Trek ship designs. They are forever in my heart. Matt Jeffries was a freaking genius when he came to that three-part ratio. Looking at the original Enterprise, there is no bad angle. It looks good mm-hmm. from every single angle. And I've, I played that one Star Trek app game. I forget what it's called. But, um, you know, your ships were basically stationary and you had little cards you could play with them and all that sort of stuff. And I remember I had the original Star Trek Enterprise as one of my ones. And you can, it's always, you know, framed behind like a lovely nebula or a, or a planet or something like that, or a series of asteroids. And I just remember sometimes I would just go on the app and spin the camera around and just look at the ship because it is so attractive. So that uh, little bit of throat clearing aside, um, first of all, I think that obviously the Expanse has a much better representation of how space travel would actually look. Ships that are built like buildings and the um, the speed that you're going creates the artificial gravity, right? The momentum that you're traveling at creates that artif- mm-hmm. artificial gravity. And then when you're slowing down, you flip. And then you slowing down will then also create that artificial ga- uh, gravity. And when I think about the way ships fight each other uh, in Star Trek, it's always kind of like rock'em sock'em robots, where they just come nose to nose and just start blasting each other, <laughs> which again, yeah. there's no there's no subtlety there. And I often think, you know, they would be hiding behind planets and they would be almost, you know, practically like they a battle could take place between like Jupiter and Mercury, right? Something like that, where you're dealing with small amounts of um, time, space, you know, warping and everything else like that. So my big question is, the one thing in Star Trek that I wonder why it isn't used more often is the Picard maneuver. And I'm not talking about the tunic pull that uh, uh, Sir Pat Stewart does. More so, it's what he did to defeat the Ferengi with the Stargazer, where he hit warp just for like a yocto second and wound up in two places at once and the Ferengi didn't know what to shoot at and he did it. Why aren't they doing that more often? Why aren't they bouncing around at each other? And I mean, obviously the special effects artists who may be listening to this might be going, Barry, shut up. Barry, shut up, shut up. <laughs> I, no, 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 no. But it would look cool. And I think it actually makes a lot of sense, right? If you get fired at, just zip to your left slightly using the warp field, right? You got these giant nacelles, use them, right? Warp some space time around yourself. Use that as a shield. That one always kind of gets me in the sense that, you know, 
the Romulans and the Klingons have cloaking ability, right? The Borg can suddenly adapt to whatever you're firing at them. The Dominion are just crazy AF and will just fly at you, <laughs> right? The rest in peace Odyssey, um, just going straight <laughs> into their deflector dish. Uh, and it Pour makes... one out for Captain Keo and his crew. <sighs> oh, oh, yeah. What a guy, you know? Just was not expecting that one. That actually... Just really quick aside, that really bothered me. Watching a galaxy class starship get get just get smoked in like three seconds. That that really did yeah. kind of take the wind out of my sails, pun intended. And to continue the tangent, the timing of that, that was the end of Deep Space Nine season two, yep. which was also coinciding with the end of TNG season seven. And the whole purpose of that was for the writers of Deep Space Nine saying, if Picard had drawn the card to take this mission and take the Enterprise into the Gamma Quadrant, the Enterprise would have been destroyed. Oh, man. Yeah, no, that's... That was their whole point. That's the implication. Jeez, I'm crow. Well, yeah, and the Dominion, right? Like, very much um, every single... Every single species in Star Trek seems to have these little technological tweaks and foibles that they're able to utilize. And obviously, of course, what that means is human beings have their cunning and their abilities and their and their, <laughs> their diplomacy, and they don't need all these blah, blah, blahs. But to some degree, I just think, okay, we're going to pick five spots in space that we're just going to bounce around, and we've got inertial dampers, right? We know what we're doing. Um, let's just blind them with like 30 different ships all at once let's be in several places at once they don't know what to shoot at and then we'll just keep firing at them because they're going to stay in one place because they think it's rock'em sock'em robots Mm -hmm. um so that would be my kind of larger conversation around the picard maneuver and just how he's you know captain picard is known for this amazing maneuver that he never uses again and no one ever uses at all yeah especially given that you know, it's required reading at the Academy and right? stuff, and it's kind of in the big book of Starfleet, <laughs> the big book of Starfleet tactics or whatever. Uh, now, I will say it inspired a maneuver in the final episode of season one of Picard, where it's cited as like, it confuses the enemy, it gives two chips yeah. in the same place at the same time. They don't use warp drive for it. Instead they use, and if I'm remembering correctly, the magical device that yeah. gives them whatever they want. I don't still don't really understood, <sighs> understand how that works, but that's how they created the illusion that there was like a hundred, yeah, uh, La Sarenia, um, attacking the Romulans. Yeah. So it served as inspiration in that one instance. But yeah, you'd think another captain would have tried this a few times or, or something. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, actual naval battles today, you don't actually even see the ship you're fighting. In a lot of cases, it's beyond oh, the horizon, course, yeah. right? As much as, as much as that does kind of like, doesn't lend well to good television, right? You know, again, you know, imagine some Starfleet captain being like, ships up, and then just something explodes, right? And that would be the end of it. Perhaps that's not as interesting, but um, yeah, that would be my other big kind of loose end of, of space combat itself. And I mean, there were to be implications of, you know, ship designs. I actually think the Borg sphere is the most accurate style of, space-based warship that one would ever want to fly in because um, mm. there's weapons on all sides the propulsion comes from within basically and yeah there's no there's no up or down yeah that's a good one it's it's one that kind of like the saucer separation i guess in tng you kind <laughs> of expected to see more often because they made such a big deal of it too expensive but, uh, yeah exactly <laughs> Well, for my next one, uh, I'm going to dip back to TOS again, just because uh, I, I've 
feel like we don't talk enough about the original series sometimes. True fact. And this was my earliest introduction to Star Trek was watching TOS on CBC television here in Canada at eight in the morning on Saturday mornings. Uh, everyone else was watching cartoons. I flipped over to CBC and watched the original Star Trek. And one of the first episodes I remember watching that really captured my attention was the Squire of Gothos and <laughs> the character of Trelane, uh, yes. who was just like William Campbell played this character so well, just this, this pompous over the top foppish individual who countered Kirk at every move and had this haughty sense of like, Oh, you can't hurt me. Very, you know, Q like, of course we would see a character similar to him later, but a different character in that he had some sort of mechanism that was powering his illusions and also, of course, by the end of the episode, you find out that he is a child. He's not, you know, this uh, godlike character, but instead is told by his parents to come in and stop playing with the little creatures out there kind of thing. This is a character I think would have been really interesting to see come up again, maybe uh, in a later series, perhaps grown, yeah. perhaps uh, maybe a counter to Q of some kind. I don't know. Now, he has appeared, of course, because he's a very tantalizing character outside of the canon. We've seen him show up in novels and comics. And in fact, a very good novel, Q Squared by Peter David, posits that he is actually a Q, just a, a juvenile Q, which I, I was never really satisfied with. I love that novel. I think it's a great story, really cool time stuff and multiple universe stuff going on there. But I was never really satisfied with the, oh, he's just a Q, just a young one. Uh, there's enough differences there that I think he's something very different. And I would have loved to have seen him show up maybe on Deep Space Nine and Cisco punching him doesn't get rid of him. So I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, again, we're we're looking at the, the. I think TOS lends itself well to the, sort of these loose ends, right? Because of course, Star Trek is in its infancy; it doesn't really have the established foundation that it would have. So, kind of squaring the circle later, like it would be a Q or or something along those lines, kind of makes sense. And I'm actually just going to roll this in together instead of making it a completely different topic. But I, my, my sense feels the same about the Traveler, in the sense mm. he's. He comes in, he's monolithic in his power, right? He can literally take the Enterprise wherever he wants throughout the galaxy. Um, there's really no stopping him. If he was malevolent, more so, you know, um, he's, you know, a learner and a grower, whereas um, uh, Trillane is mischievous, I would say, more than anything, much like a Q. If either were sufficiently malevolent, we, would have, we wouldn't have much of a series, right? They could have just come in and run roughshod over the entire thing. So mm -hmm. I like the idea of him, you know, of, of maybe seeing a grown-up Trelane show up later and be like, hey, guys, sorry, I was, I was just a dumb kid, you know. <laughs> How's Kirk doing, <laughs> by the way? <laughs> oh, really? Oh, God. Oh, oh, a bridge? He fell off? What? Oh. That's lame. You know, something oh, like, like the bridge of a starship. Oh, no, no. Oh, an actual bridge. But that's weird. Oh, oh my. <laughs> Isn't that what maybe he Maybe that's, yeah, maybe. So Kirk, when he dies, gets this like shocked look and says, oh my, and then dies. Maybe he saw Trelane. Yeah, Trelane's just waving at him being like, hey, buddy. Hey. <laughs> I'm all grown up now. We, we can We can get along. It's all good. And yeah, the same the same kind of goes for the traveler, right? I, I feel like this kind of mm -hmm. falls into the same 
sort of thing. I mean, obviously, tr- the, the traveler's weird weird mittens that he has makes him makes him slightly <laughs> different there. But uh, you know, him coming in and scouting around for 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 people to to go on trips with him and stuff like that also indicates, much like Esper's, that that anyone can become something like this or, or perhaps something along those lines. Whereas Trelane, yeah, is his own species in in that sense. He was born into the power that he had and wields it like a kid who's got his dad's gun so and it also reminds me i haven't watched the squire of gothos in a very long time so i think i might pick that one up later that one is a a cheeky and fun episode it is a good one I i think what attracted me to it so much is that idea that like this guy could swat the enterprise like a fly and he's playing with them the whole time like at any moment he could just kind of whisk Kirk out of existence and it's it there's a genuine sense of danger throughout the whole thing that this being is completely unhinged you find out that's immaturity it's Mm -hmm. not that he's insane it's that he's a little kid with a magnifying glass torturing ants like that's what he's doing right Um, yeah he could of course stomp on all the ants and kill them all right away and there's a very real danger that that could happen at any moment but Kirk has to kind of keep him off balance and keep him playing in order to find figure out how to survive for the next five minutes kind of thing it's it's terrifying it's cunning (laughs) it's all cunning right we humans Mm -hmm. and our cunningness right well the other one and and this one I have to give a a little bit of a a loving shout out to red shirts always die love you guys love your work Uh, and that is Gary Seven, James Bond of the galaxy. He's pretty cool, right? He's dashing. He's He's got a plan. He knows what he's doing. And then he never comes back, um, which I found out through uh, Red Shirts Always, uh, Always Die, is that he was what they call a hedge. Uh, and what that is, is a sort of semi-second pilot that Roddenberry wanted to get another series started with, despite Star Trek's success or failure, but it was kind of like, a, you know, another channel that this uh, science fiction series could have gone in. And I mean, the implications around that are very big in the sense that what could have possibly come of the Star Trek universe had we gone more into the that style of intrigue and whatnot. And I wonder if if maybe this is where we could see him showing up in Michelle Yeoh's Section 31 um, series. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about the opportunities we could utilize for a Gary Seven character to show up in something like that, or even Gary Seven himself uh, to come back and uh, either play as a trusted companion, a skyhook helper, or a villain. I think that would be really cool, is a Gary Seven-like character who's turned much like uh, What's-His-Face in Goldeneye, uh, Trevelyan. Mm-hmm. He's actually bad or something. But I think a lot about, again, the original series and how, you know, they were sort of kind of just throwing pickles at the window to see what sticks. Uh, I used to do that at McDonald's back in the day until they kicked me out for doing it. Um, (laughs) It's fun. Uh, Anyway. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Probably not for the the minimum wage workers that had to deal with you, but uh, no, yeah. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I feel bad for them, but I feel nothing for the company. It can, whatever. Uh, oh, here, here. Bad words. 
<laughs> but yeah, the the idea of Gary Seven though is really fascinating and fun. Um, again, I wonder to some degree if Gary Seven was going to come back later in uh, season five, six, or seven of Enterprise. I think he would have uh, mm. would have fit in quite nicely there as well. But uh, rants later coming. Um, Enterprise has a lot of loose ends in my in my mind. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of a lot of uh, missed opportunities and uh, just sort of floating potentials that just never came to anything, which is not necessarily disappointing, right? The series is what it is, and the franchise is still in existence. So I mean, anything that might have been missed could still get picked up moving forward. So yeah, I, I really like Gary Seven. I like his idea. He he obviously is, again, very much a product of the 1960s, this dashing spy uh, and whatnot, the intrigue and everything else. It comes pretty nicely. But uh, no, he just sort of comes and goes. He disappears. And, and that's the last we see of him. Gary Seven, very compelling character. And yeah, like you said, this kind of backdoor pilot idea. I would have loved to have seen Assignment Earth as a as a series. That would have been very cool. I loved in season two of Picard how, and, and a lot of people didn't, a lot of people don't like that season of Picard and, and it has its issues. I uh, But I loved in the final episode how they kind of tied together the whole Gary Sevens group with the Travelers, which we also just spoke about and kind of made Wesley the face of that. So like how cool would an assignment earth type series be with Wesley as kind of the lead of this group that are doing the intervening or or whatever it strikes me as almost a doctor whoish type take on star trek a little bit especially with the little what are the the servo that mm. he uses that you know very much feels like a, a sonic screwdriver <laughs> you're right actually that would be very interesting i don't know if the way Wesley was written that he could be say as dashing as uh, as Gary Seven. He he's more of a wasn't his name Q as well the 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 gadget guy in in James Bond. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's more of a I that could, Q. Yeah, or I could almost see him as like the guy back at headquarters, mm-hmm. right? Not like Q, like you say, but almost maybe a spy master or yeah. something, sending his assets out into the field, Ooh, right? Yeah, Wesley's assets. Yeah, he he could be like uh like. Charlie, I guess, in Charlie's Angels or something. I don't oh my know. goodness, Wesley's Wesley's Angels. I, I don't know if that <laughs> I don't know if that rolls off the tongue quite as well. Probably not. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that would that would be interesting. <laughs> um, as far as Gary Seven himself goes, of course, yeah, we never saw him again in canon Star Trek. But who boy, the list of times he has shown up elsewise. Uh, I think there's a uh, Greg Cox novel called Assignment Eternity, Mm. which I have not read, but I've heard very good things about. Uh, He shows up in the comics quite a bit. I think they had a whole run with him in the old DC comics universe. And most recently, IDW did Star Trek Year 5. And there was a whole arc with Gary Seven, which you might want to check out because they do do that thing where he has a bit of a heel turn and is fighting the crew of the Enterprise for a good chunk of that. Uh, So, yeah, he's kind of the villain of the piece for a few of those issues. So that's interesting. I like that. Ooh, Mm -hmm. cool. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. 
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of Positively Trek is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. A special thank you to our Constitution Class supporters, Jim Stoffel, Joyce Mirren, and Paul D. Kinnear. To help out with the podcast, visit patreon.com slash positivelytrek, where, for a small monthly donation, you can get early access to ad-free episodes, shout-outs, exclusive content, associate producer credits, and more. Thank you so much for listening, and live long and prosper. I'm going to again go with tos because this is the one that i think is um kind of most compelling to me on this list and that is if you recall the season two tos episode by any other name Mm. the kelvins from the andromeda galaxy we had this advanced scout team that had taken human form and was scouting out possible invasion plans for the federation And by the end of the episode, Kirk convinces them via their new human sensations that uh, they should be peaceful and just settle down, find somewhere to live. They'll get a planet. But the Kelvins are still coming at some point. Mm -hmm. I think 10,000 years, they said, the Andromeda galaxy would become uninhabitable, which is why they were... Uh, wanting to invade the Milky Way galaxy. I don't know what the time frame of that invasion exactly was, but we've now fast forwarded a thousand years into Discovery. So it would be kind of cool to see some sort of movement on that, like, or at least the Federation saying like, uh, hey, how close are we to this Kelvin invasion? Oh, okay, let's let's keep an eye on that or something. Now, I will say in researching this, I'd forgotten about this, but there's a throwaway line in a Deep Space Nine episode where Worf mentions fighting a Kelvin twice his size. So maybe there's an off-screen invasion attempt already or something, or this is one of the Kelvins from that planet that got settled in TOS or something. But uh, they've been mentioned in a throwaway line at one point in DS9. But other than that, we've not seen them. And if I recall correctly... Spock, when he's kind of touching the mind of one of the Kelvins, sees these immense creatures with like tentacles and like nothing they've ever seen before. So, you know, the potential for some very otherworldly alien species could be really interesting there. That would be. And, and the the image created kind of actually reminds me of the villain species in the Tom Cruise, Emily Blunt joint um, uh, Edge of Tomorrow where they use mm-hmm. time and everything like that to to control reality and and whatnot and and such but um i guess like in in real scientific terms at least as far as we understand with redshift and everything else uh, andromeda actually they they don't need to travel here at all, all they need to do is wait <laughs> the andromeda galaxy is hurtling towards the milky way at an unimaginable speed and i think we we joked before we hit record that uh, if they actually got in ships and started traveling, they might be outpaced by the galaxy they were trying to escape getting to the Milky Way, which uh, <laughs> is an interesting sort of 
time gravity whatever warping paradox in and of itself but uh yeah, no, I, I never really gave it much thought, uh, the, the Kelvins especially, and until you brought up its mention in Deep Space Nine, to be honest with you, um, there's a lot to be talked about, and with the last season of Discovery coming out, there's an opportunity, but I'm not terribly certain what they're going to be covering in that season anyways, so yeah, I guess the uh, the old adage, we'll see, has to be the uh, the big piece there. For sure. So I did just look it up because I was curious. So the Kelvins do have this amazing ability to tweak warp drives and travel between the galaxies in about 300 years, which is an incredibly fast amount of time. Yeah. Uh, The Andromeda galaxy is scheduled to smash into the Milky Way in about 4.5 billion years. Oh, just around the corner. Holy cow. Yeah. We better set your calendars, (laughs) folks. (laughs) Um, um, my brain goes to, I love the care. This is a tangent, but I love the genetically engineered misfits that show up on deep space nine a couple times. Mm-hmm. And they, they have this thing at one point where they're talking about like basically the, you know, the galaxy is going to be destroyed. The, the forces holding it together are going to come apart. And, uh, they're like, um, how much time do we have? Eight, 8 billion years, maybe nine. And the other guy goes, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't remember what the exact numbers were, but it was something along those lines. That's funny. One of my favorite uh, explanations of how space time kind of expands and how everything is expanding and how from our perspective, it looks like everything else is moving uh, is uh, a friend of mine who's a science teacher has um a series of washers that are fixed in place on an elastic band. And as you pull Mm. the elastic band apart, just looking normally, you'll see all the washers are moving. But if you focus your attention only on one of the washers as he pulls on it, it looks as though that washer isn't moving and everything else is. Um, Mm. So again, just the implications really do kind of kind of like looking through a, an inverted kaleidoscope of, uh, of space and time and everything like that. So to some degree, I wonder if the writers are up to the challenge to, uh, to even work through something like that it might be kind of difficult, I would imagine. Yeah, it requires a lot on the part of the writers, but it also requires a lot to be able to get the watchers to wrap their minds around it. Like, yeah. yeah, that's crazy. That's a bit much. Um, well, maybe something a little less uh, high concept. Um, my question is: is uh, the uh, the fish out of water slash whale out of water? Pun intended. <laughs> story of Jillian from the voyage home, living her life uh, in the future. I wonder what exactly her days would be spent on. How much catching up she'd have to do? And uh, I don't know. I I, I would uh, I would almost kind of like to be her in that sense, uh, moving to the future and and especially if it's a Star Trek future uh getting to see all of the things and getting to experience the technology and everything else i would also be a little fearful of the transporters though much like mccoy um i do wonder if it just kills you and reproduces you later and obviously Riker is an example of what could happen there um but anyways i i I would be interested to see jillian's story uh as she settles down uh in the would be 23rd century i believe correct or the yeah Mm -hmm. in the 23rd century yeah i always get my 23rd 24th years gotta go back one and it always hurts my brain yeah this is one that i've always been fascinated by too and actually she was on my list as well this was one of our our crossovers on our list yeah Jillian Taylor, that story to me is always so compelling. And yeah, you can't help but put yourself in her shoes and, you know, what would it be like to 
flash forward to the 23rd century and see all these wondrous things for the first time and, and live in that universe. There've been, I think a few times that I, I, I can't remember who all was included. I think she was included on this list, but Christopher L. Bennett once again did a novel, the Department of Temporal Investigations series. Uh, I think that, I think it was the first novel watching the clock and there's like basically a support group for people who've been temporally displaced yeah. and, and like people who've lived through it, you know, help other people through. And I think Jillian Taylor was at least mentioned. It's been a long time since mm. I've, I've read that novel, but it was interesting because they talked about, uh, also the, the humans who were like unfrozen from the, right. the capsule in season one of TNG and that was a really cool way to explore some of the the social issues and stuff because she basically this one woman was kind of appalled that her great 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 granddaughter or something was marrying another woman it was like what that's wild and then realized oh there's people marrying aliens like what am i so hung up on this yeah. is this is nothing you yeah know? exactly <laughs> So that was kind of a, a fun thing. And, and it would be interesting, not just the technological side of that, but also the culture shock. Somebody from 1986 going forward to, you know, 2270, 2280, whatever. What cultural things that we're not even thinking of that they would just take for granted in the 23rd century? Would somebody from the 1980s just be like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, no, I, it, it, I'm, to be honest with you, imagine someone from 1986 showing up right now. I'm sure they would also be like, what, what the, what is going on? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Facebook? <yeah>. What? <laughs> what's, what's Facebook? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense to me. The other quick little aside about the voyage home, and this one get, does get brought up. Actually, I remember being in a very long car ride with my friend Matt once. We were we were driving and, and talking at length about if a bird of prey just zipping around a sun can travel through time. The Klingons aren't that dumb. They'd know. They'd figure that out. Um, why aren't they using that more often? Right? The Borg <laughs> tried it. Uh, why? Why couldn't? Uh, why couldn't others try it as well? So that's just a, the little side part. But I am now completely amused by the concept of a temporal traveler person support group and i honestly have to say it probably came from um the uh, the botany bay uh, incident where people mm. unfroze and wound up in the future and were pretty cheesed off about everything and yep. uh, yeah so support groups i i would need a support group if i was moving forward in time i tell you yeah i think the crew of the bozeman also made use of that service uh Oh, that makes an sense. effect ship, yeah. <laughs> I actually have a Bozeman right in front of me here. Um, nice. Yeah, nice little variation on the Reliant. Nice one. And good grab, by the way, there too, in terms of, of, uh, of an idea for a support group. I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> uh, also, with regards to Jillian Taylor, I would be remiss if I didn't do a little plug for a Greg Cox novel that is coming out in July of this year. The original series, Lost to Eternity. Actually, really cool. I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to read the back cover blurb for this one because mm. I think if you're interested in Jillian Taylor, this one sounds really cool. So, 2024. Almost 40 years ago, marine biologist Jillian Taylor stormed away from her dream job at Sausalito Cetacean Institute and was never seen or heard from again. Now a new true crime podcast has reopened the cold case, but investigator Melinda Silver has no idea that her search for the truth about Jillian's disappearance will ultimately stretch across time and space and attract the attention of a ruthless obsessive with his own secret agenda. 
I need to read this book. <laughs> it sounds really good. There's there's an additional bits of the blurb, 2268 and 2292. So it's like a TOS oh, movie man. era type thing. But the Jillian Taylor true crime podcast thing is just like, I want to read this now. That so, sounds so cool. Yeah. So July 23rd, that is coming out uh, on in paperback. And we will be covering it on the Positively Trek book club. So. Woot. I love it. Excited for that one. Greg Cox is a, a great author and he does he does great stuff with like time and our past combining it with like his eugenics wars novels were mm -hmm. really interesting. So all right. Uh I'm going to bring up another one that was on both our lists and one that comes up a lot. I think a lot of people really want to follow up on this or, or are curious about it. And that is of course the conspiracy parasites yeah. from TNG season one, the, uh, from the episode conspiracy, the ones that very nearly took over all of Starfleet and they just saved them by the skin of their teeth. And at the end of the episode, there's that mysterious homing signal. That's like supposed to call them all in to, feast on the federation and we never in canon star trek we never yeah. see any kind of uh, outcome of that yeah the the conspiracy bugs again kind of come into that you know overly highfalutin almost impossible to to defeat enemy that i do think kind of comes up and i'm again going to kind of roll this into control uh would would be very mm. similar in in discovery as well these uh these sort of infiltrators right or even to some degree the the shapeshifters uh in uh, deep space nine as well you know uh, and then later of course uh picard the the final season as well this uh, infiltration uh, idea that always sort of comes up in in starfleet that uh, it's this very well put together highly organized bureaucracy that just immediately gets infiltrated by some of the worst people and obviously that is a bit of a call to kind of what we're dealing with i think right now in certain cases it's just uh, they're not bugs folks they're just people and they're super greedy but <laughs> yeah no I, I i found i found that episode for myself to be painfully painfully just out of this world like you know i think it's one of the most violent episodes of star trek too long mm. before discovery right you literally see a person's face get melted off and blow up it's uh yep. it's it's not really and, and i hate using this term but it's not as star trekky as most star trek is it's um it, it really did again you know while tng was still trying to find its footing it, it, it delved into some very problematic territory and this was this was definitely it yeah it felt very alien very terminator very yeah. like trying to kind of get into that part of sci-fi which feels like a very record scratch moment <laughs> like, very much what? so yeah not as bad as code of honor but definitely no out, yes for out, different reasons yeah out there as um as again, a concept that that might have worked better, say in something like like an alien universe, or or I could even see Battlestar Galactica doing more with something like that. To be honest, maybe not Star Wars. Thinking about it, Doctor Who would do well with a uh, with an enemy like that as well. And maybe, oh yeah, maybe there is one. I'm sorry, I, I have not kept up with uh, with Doctor Who whatsoever. That is another completely massively vast franchise that would take up a lot of time to to get caught up on. So mad props yeah. to anyone who does lovely series. But uh, yeah, I don't have much else to say about these little parasites other than they came and they went, and I'm kind of glad they're gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that said, I, I think they make for some interesting implications if done right I, I feel like the like 
oh, we heard about this thing that was happening a few episodes ago. And now all of a sudden the very top brass of Starfleet are taken over and boy, that was close. I think that's a little bit ridiculous. I think that got a little out of hand, but I, I feel like on a smaller scale, these would be a really interesting threat and it's one that has been revisited a few times outside of the canon works so uh the deep space nine relaunch novels the ones that take place after the series that really kind of kicked off that shared universe of of novels that that reigned for a few years until you know uh paramount picked up the television side of things again and they said whoops well now actually no but uh yeah, they, they did an interesting arc with those parasites and uh, I won't give away too many spoilers, but they tie them in a really interesting way to the symbionts of Trill as well. That actually had me thinking and, and to some degree, it's almost as if the Trill are the non-weaponized versions of those parasites to some degree, mm, right? Uh, interesting. I, I appreciate that actually quite a bit. <laughs> Maybe, and, and this is me just kind of grasping at things a little bit, and it might have been treated a little better in more recent iterations of some deep evil infiltration trying to get us. An episode like that would do better as a, like the underarching storyline to an entire season, right? Throwing it into a 41-minute episode just doesn't really lend itself to the stakes that it's supposed to have or anything along those lines. And so, again, I think it's just writers sort of finger-painting their way through an episode trying to make it try to draw in as much of an audience as possible. And you're very right. You know, the early 90s was known for its hyper-violent sci-fi, right? Where where you've got Arnold Schwarzenegger peeling out one of his eyes. You've got uh, John Hurt, I think his name was, the character whose chest explodes an alien. And then you've got The Predator and all these sorts of things. Late 80s, early 90s, sci-fi was known for its blood and guts. Uh, and this is definitely a product of that time for sure. Yeah, absolutely. They are, they do also feature, I will say, and I haven't read these yet. They're kind of the comics that are currently coming out. Uh, the Star Trek Defiant comics that are kind of a spinoff of the mainline Star Trek ongoing series right now. Uh, according to some of the, uh, the art of one of the upcoming issues, the cover art, uh, oh, Okay, these guys play a role in that. So I'm not sure what that storyline is. I'm not there yet in the comics, but they're they're doing something with those uh, parasites. And interestingly enough, tying them to uh, the gangsters of Sigma Iosha 2 in a piece of the action. And that's where I was going next. Uh, McCoy leaves his communicator. Yeah, McCoy leaves his communicator behind. There is... That is a treasure trove, I think, in terms of the idea of an infiltration taking place as well. Imagine a a mafia criminal syndicate um, infiltrating the Federation. And again, maybe getting into uh, touching into realistic politics right now of uh, mafia style criminal syndicates running the show. Um, I think we're kind of in a place like that in certain cases, if you think of the way the financial system works these days and everything else. Um, if we really want something, quote unquote, ripped from the headlines like Star Trek does again that could be a very fascinating arc to make our way through and we already have uh, everything in place to do that so uh, uh, paramount i uh, dan and i will accept uh, our uh, our uh, royalty checks anytime <laughs> when you want to start putting that series together and we'd happily be executive producers or consultants for that um yeah we'll just uh, get in touch with us and and we'll make that happen yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> yeah the the communicator left behind on Sigma Yosha 2 has been this hanging thing in the Star Trek universe for a long time. Over 50 Absolutely. Years. Yep. 
And uh, it's almost been followed up on uh, at least once in canon Star Trek. The episode of Deep Space Nine that became Trials and Tribulations. Right. They were, they were looking at situations to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Star Trek with a special episode. And I don't know how far along it got in the planning, but one of the ideas was they revisit Sigma Iosha 2 and there's like a working star base in orbit and everyone has become like Star Trek fans basically <laughs> because of this communicator and the influence that Kirk and company had on the society. Huh. Uh, I love Trials and Tribulations. I'm glad we got that episode. I would be very fascinated to see what this episode would have become, though. So, well, like I said, <laughs> royalty checks uh, can can head our way any point. Um, we're <laughs> we're doing your work for free right now. So if they say the Joker said, if you're good at anything, never do it for free. Um, which again, yeah. I would say would be kind of the idea of what the gangsters would be up to once they made it to the Federation, especially later iterations of the Federation sort of having money again by the Picard uh, era, right? Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like money's a thing. And then it kind of is again. And I don't know, I'm not necessarily against the concept of money. Don't ever get me wrong, folks. It's just when it's used for the powers of evil, just like anything, uh, it can really, really just erode the human spirit in a lot of cases but it makes for good tv so mm-hmm. yeah let's uh, let's see if we can make that a thing so another book that follows up on the gangsters not necessarily going the direction that that deep space nine episode was but like they still kind of have their gangster society and they're operating in the 24th century and dealing with other worlds the very very good star trek picard novel rogue elements by john jackson miller mm. uh check that one out that came out in 2021 i believe um very fun novel and it uses the the gangsters of sigma Osha 2 uh, in a brilliant way nice Awesome. What do you got next? We we have so many here, folks. Like, seriously, there's so many loose ends. We won't cover them all, but uh, I'm realizing you and I have already been talking for over an hour with uh, all of these things. That's that's remarkable. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to jump to, I think, the last one on my list because it's one that I really want to talk about. And that is uh, from Star Trek Enterprise, Season 2, Carbon Creek, Mm. Mistral, the Vulcan who ended up staying behind in Carbon Creek in the 1950s. Now, this was one that I thought they were following up on in season two of Picard with that FBI agent who encounters a Vulcan team and he was mind melded with. I remember when the trailer came out and you saw signs of Vulcans in the past. I was like, oh my God, they're bringing back Mistral and he's going to... No, no, they that was not part of it. Um, They did a plie right over that. (laughs) Yep, absolutely. They jumped the shark. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they used the concept of what that episode was built around, but didn't use the elements from that episode. I kind of wish they had. Uh, People might scream "small universe syndrome," but it's it's Earth in a very in one country on Earth. Like, yeah, they could have had a straw there. Yeah, I I guess I should correct myself. They jumped the Vulcan, not the shark. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I loved that episode. I thought his performance in that episode yeah. was really good. J. Paul Bomer was great as this Vulcan. I would have loved to have seen him again uh, show up or or have some influence on history or something like that. Would have been really cool. Now, again, this is one that if you go into the novels, uh, most especially, I think the Dayton Ward novel, Forgotten History uses this character to great effect. Love me some Dayton Ward. Oh yeah. Great, great writer and uses this stuff that the TV shows 
uh, kind of leave in their wake. They leave as detritus in their wake and the novel <laughs> writers come along and pick up the pieces and, and build really cool things with them. And, uh, that again has happened in this situation, but man, would I have actually loved to have seen him on screen again. Well, it actually, thinking about that, it actually gives the Vulcans more reason to be around earth. If they know that one of their own was chilling out because, Mestrel would technically still be alive, probably by the time of first contact anyways, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Vulcans live a really long time. He'd, he'd be a geezer by that point. But uh, no, it, it is, uh, again, uh, there's a there's an untapped vein there that, that would be very interesting to see canon explore a little bit. But again, you know, time is money. So we won't necessarily see him ever again. I would I would worry in that respect. And I guess maybe just kind of adding my last little bit, most of Enterprise is is a loose end for me. Season four ending the way it did, how it did, the last episode. um, There is just so much that kind of floats out in the ether for me in terms of that. But uh, I've heard implications that the guy in the without the face who archer's talking to is simply archer from the future talking to him um i've heard that before i i don't know what exactly to make of that totally but again you know franchises trying to make money over make stories and and all that sort of stuff left us with a four season enterprise rather than the hoped for seven not necessarily something I'm going to totally complain about. We still get some amazingly good ap- episodes, especially season three of Enterprise for me is easily one of my favorite pieces of Star Trek uh, in the franchise's history. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I think, yeah, like, isn't that the season where Observer Effect is in? Uh, season four. That's season four. Observer Effect. Gosh, yeah. that's a good which is Which is my favorite season. Oh, man. What a, what a brilliant episode. So maybe season four I like a little bit better. But uh, mm. yeah, the Vulcan arc, um, we really get to, to see a lot of good stuff out of Enterprise. So I'm not going to say that it's like a loss or anything like that. But just a couple of those loose ends would have been nice to see, figure out. But maybe the mystery is interesting. And I'm going to come back to that a little while later about the mystery actually being better than the answer. But we'll we'll get there. Okay. Yeah, the, the future guy thing. Uh, I think that was Rick Berman and Brandon Braga or one, one of them had said years later that like, that was one of the ideas they were working with was that that was actually Archer from the future or something like that. I think the, um, again, the department of temporal investigations novels by Christopher L. Bennett make him just kind of, uh, some bad guy who was trying to control time stuff who he'd never met before, which respect for that, I guess, um, kind of a little bit anticlimactic in my mind. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. He's some dude, which, yeah, I guess that makes the most sense. I always kind of thought he was a Romulan. I don't know why I thought that. I just, I think maybe he had very square, like, um, shoulder pad looking shoulders. And maybe that's why I thought he was a Romulan, but I, I don't know. Yeah. That would have been nice to get some answers on that. His uniform didn't look upholstered, so I can't necessarily say he's a a Romulan. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Absolutely. I guess the the last couple on my list, um, the big one, I guess, is Cisco's return. Of course, the end of Deep Space Nine, how that was left. He said he would return maybe tomorrow, maybe a year, maybe yesterday. Of course, we've seen his return in a number of different venues in those novels, the post-Deep Space Nine ones, uh, the current run of Star Trek comics that take place after Deep Space Nine. Uh, He has also returned 
in that. But as far as canon Star Trek goes, I would be satisfied. I mean, I, I can't imagine we're ever going to get Avery Brooks starring in something as Cisco ever again. I would be okay if even just as an offhand comment, some admiral or somebody on Star Trek Picard or whatever series we have that kind of is in that time period makes an offhand comment about uh, the return of Benjamin Sisko last year or something mm. like that. I would be over the moon with that. That would be just, I want some confirmation that he comes back and that Jake's going to be okay and that his new baby is going to have a father and, and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> so this is actually what I was just hinting at is I prefer the mystery. Um, mm. There is, you know, um, the the Abrahamic religions do a very good job of the idea of the Messiah returning or coming, depending on who's where. Um, in terms of Judaism, right, it's the idea that the Messiah is always in a state of coming. He's always going to be arriving. He's in a state of arrival. Whereas in Christianity, of course, the Messiah has already come and will return. And of course, in Islam, uh, it's not the idea that there was one singular Messiah. There's actually been a few. Um, and that the return of Isa, say Islam, um, would come back um, to sort of finish what uh, Muhammad, peace be upon him, said ultimately overall about the, the law and everything. So I get a very sort of Abrahamic feel to to Cisco's departure, right? And the wormhole aliens, of course, the prophets, as they're called, um, <laughs> just really touches in to that that vein very well. And for a Western mind raised in, you know, kind of a, a Abrahamically oriented uh, society, I think leaving it where it has does an extremely good job of of the mystery. I think I think Cisco's uh, unity with the prophets ultimately or wormhole aliens, depending on what side you're on, ultimately sort of completes that that sense of Cisco's always returning, right? Uh, and there's been more than one Cisco in the past. And, you know, his sacrifice was for us all, you know, so that's kind of covering all three of the Abrahamic religions there to some degree. And yeah, no, Avery Brooks himself, he ain't coming back. <laughs> he's he's all done. The the, the beauty of, of Cisco for me um, is is something something big. He's a he's kind of like the Malcolm X of Star Trek in a lot of ways for me, and I really mm -hmm. do appreciate that. Something you said there, and it's very cool. If you think of Star Trek as not reality but a series of stories and myths and legends, which it is. Yep. Like let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> ding this ding 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 ding. <laughs> this ain't real. Um, there are so many stories uh. of Cisco's return and how he comes back and what he does when he comes back. If you count these comics that I'm, I'm holding up and showing Barry right now or uh, the novels or whatever. And that is kind of cool. It feeds into that, that mythos, right? Like if we imagine say in discoveries time period, somebody is talking about this period of history and they talk about like, whatever happened with that Cisco thing? Like, mm -hmm. I remember they said that he left, he went to the wormhole. What happened after that? And it's like, well, this group says that this happened, but then there's these stories that this happened. And then there's this other group that says that we still await his return. And that actually wasn't Cisco. It was something like, hmm, interesting. It's almost like they're ripping it from the biggest religions <laughs> in the world, Sikhism and Buddhism notwithstanding. <laughs> hmm. Fascinating, as mm. someone might say. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking Excellent. of God. Yes. Okay. So the very last one on my list, I wasn't even sure if we'd get to this one. This is just kind of a, a mild wondering of mine. 
Uh, we saw Q, of course, in season two of Star Trek Picard and the very end of season three of Star Trek Picard. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. Um, but we haven't heard from Q's son, who uh, appeared as an infant in Star Trek Voyager and then as uh, played by Keegan Delancey right. in the final season episode of Star Trek Voyager. Uh, what's he up to? Is he bringing peace to the Q continuum? Is he bringing the the two factions together? Uh, what's going on with him? How's he doing? If they want Q in future iterations of Star Trek, why not hire Keegan Delancey? What's he up to these days? I thought he he ably played the character in mm-hmm. Voyager. I think he'd be great to see uh, continue that role if if we want a Q type figure in future Star Trek. Um, I think he'd be awesome. Now, again, there's a comic series, uh, not out yet, but coming a spinoff of these Star Trek comics coming sometime later this year called Sons of Star Trek, I think March or April. Uh, Hmm. and he apparently figures in that along with Alexander, Jake Sisko and Nog. So I don't know what he's up to there, but I guess he shows up in the comics, but Hey, let's, let's give Keegan Delancey some work. I don't know if he's acting. I don't know what he's doing, but uh, if he's game, I'd love to see Q Jr. again. Absolutely. I, I do like the concept of the Q, um, something of a trickster god, if we want to get into the the realm of the uh, of the higher powers and something like that. Maybe to some degree a meddler, uh, a shaitan, a, a satan, uh, a lucifer um, who wants to corrupt or show mankind, humankind, uh, its corruption uh, and everything. Ultimately, that's, uh, that's Q's whole idea is he's going to break Picard and then ultimately Picard kind of breaks him um, in that <laughs> respect and, and sort of shows him the 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 meaning of mortality i think and 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 the idea that you know these q aren't aren't forever though they can sort of break the bonds of the time space continuum they are still subject to a certain form of mortality and a certain form of of growth as well so it gives them not really a godlike status but just like what happens to a person who can just sort of kick the lego castle over whenever they want that gets boring like i remember thinking to myself back in the day when i used to play grand theft auto 3 i knew all the cheat codes nothing lowers the stakes like knowing all of the cheat codes and eventually i started playing the game without the cheat codes just to see if I could do it. And and that's an interesting way of looking at things that sometimes having it all can create a type of poverty. And mm. uh, and I think Q wrestled with that poverty. And ultimately, it, it it's very clear that he doesn't want to teach Picard. He envies Picard. He wants, yeah. he wants to live through Picard's experience. He wants to see through his eyes. So maybe a Q who might be a little better educated, better understanding, has their poop in a group a little bit more, like Keegan's character was, I would be interested also to see them maybe coming from a different direction. Now, would that just turn them into sort of more of a traveler-like character? I would argue possibly, um, which kind of has already been something we've tread. But um, I don't know. I would be interested as well, seeing what we could do with a Q-like character that's been reimagined, maybe is a little more mature. Um, yeah, that would be very cool. Yeah, that would Palling be around awesome. with Trelane. <laughs> yeah, totally. I love your uh, your mentioning the you know the cheat codes and playing the like that was kind of the the theme of the Voyager episode Death Wish, right? Yes, where exactly. It was the the Q continuum where everybody was bored and yeah. like the they'd been the dog, they'd been the whatever, and they were just bored, and that's why that one Q wanted to end his life, right? So maybe uh 
fresh blood, fresh perspective, which was why Q Jr. was created, is needed in the continuum. I'd, I'd love to see that story play out. For I sure. would call him lowercase. Lowercase Q. That's interestingly how they, they refer to him in the in the novels. I think the Greg Cox Q Continuum trilogy, whenever they're talking about it's just a lowercase Q. That's cute. That's cute. Oh no. Totally. Oh, what are we doing? Uh, punny. We're coming up with future Star Trek Q episode titles. <laughs> Again, uh, you, uh, Paramount, you can send your royalty checks to us anytime you'd like, and we will definitely be happy to take on consulting and executive producer roles on the credits. Thank you. Well, with that, I guess I'm going to turn it over to our listeners. Is there a favorite one that we've mentioned that you would love to have followed up on? Is there anything we haven't thought of that you would think like, boy, Star Trek really needs, they've left this question hanging. I really want to know what happened to X, Y, or Z, right? So uh, yeah, let us know. Uh, Leave a comment on the post for this episode in the Positively Trek discussion group or reach out to us, positivelytrek at gmail.com. We would love to hear your thoughts. All that's left is to say thank you so much to my co-host, Barry DeFord, and uh, to wish everybody a great week and to let you know that we are thinking of you and to always stay positive. Positively Trek is produced and edited by me, Dan Gunther, and co-produced by Barry DeFord on Treaty 8 Territory, the home of the Beaver, Cree, Dene, and Métis people, whose histories, languages, and cultures we respect. We acknowledge the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit who have lived in and cared for these lands for generations. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.